Thank you for having me here. It is uh, really a priv privilege to be able to join you. 69 years ago, a dystopian novel was published about the year 1984. The author was British journalist and novelist Eric Arthur Blair, better known as George Orwell. And the premise was about what the world might look like in the future. Specifically, that the ruling authority would have absolute power, that the expectation of citizens was complete conformity, and that any dissent or rebellion would be detected and dealt with definitively. The government had created a language that everyone was re required to use called Newspeak, and independent thinking was seen as mutinous and could be prosecuted as thought crime. There was also a figure in the story who was referred to as Big Brother, someone who was presented as the leader of the empire, someone depicted as all-knowing, being everywhere and possessing complete control. Unquestionably, the book was written as a critique of political power, but also as a denunciation of any religious or spiritual conviction in a totalitarian God. Akin to this, there was a band 55 years later who wrote these words, If God controls the land and disease, keeps a watchful eye on me, if he's really so mighty, my problem is I can't see who would want to be such a control freak. This way of understanding God is common and has been around for quite some time, like since the very beginning of human history. The question we need to ask is whether this is the picture of God that we see in Scripture. For a number of reasons, I would contend that the answer here is no, but it would be helpful for us to walk through why I believe this to be the case instead of merely giving you my opinion. To this end, as we consider our text from chapter 4 of Hebrews this morning, which in your pew Bibles you can find on page 922, it's my hope that we will come to see God in the person of Jesus Christ as a good big brother, as opposed to a character in our life's story who is undesirably experienced as an oppressive force. Because like Orwell, I don't want to believe in a God like that either. And I don't for two main reasons. First, there is a big difference between God's sovereignty and the idea of omni-causality. In other words, it's one thing to stay, say that God is in charge of all things and quite another thing to say that God controls or causes everything. Often we falsely assume, since we ourselves are driven to be in control, that God is like this too. But such an approach is making God in our image, and the Bible presents quite a different picture of the Lord. As it was helpfully explained to, be, to me by one of my mentors, omnipotence is more about there being no limit to the effectiveness of God's activity, as opposed to a description of sheer, indiscriminate, ruthless, tyrannical power. About this, it's been said, quote, We haven't a clue as to what God can do or can't do. We know only what he has done. 
In his son, he has given himself up to suffering, abuse, degradation, and that death, which is alienation from the Father. God does his most characteristic work, love, and his most mighty work, reconciliation, when from a human perspective he appears helpless. Power is the capacity to achieve purpose. And what is God's purpose? It's a people who love him and who obey him. And how does God achieve this purpose? Through the cross. End quote. In other words, God is loving, and correspondingly, God's actions always match this nature of love. Second, apart from a faulty notion of God's power as something that's coercive or controlling, It seems to me that our often negative view of God is rooted in the idea that no one should have the right to tell us what we can and can't do. But I'm persuaded that there are certain boundaries in life that exist for our own protection, choices that we perhaps shouldn't make because the consequences may actually harm us. This isn't a popular view, but similar to any example of exclusive human companionship, we know that Our decisions, good and bad, directly affect the relationship, and our aim should be to continually please our significant other. This is also true in relation to God, but more so, because if Jesus is the creator, owner, sustainer, and redeemer of humanity, as can be seen in the first few chapters of Hebrews, then how we associate with Christ is a direct reflection of what we think about God. To this end, do we ourselves see the Lord as an intrusive authoritarian taskmaster? Or do we instead see God like a loving parent or perhaps even a sympathetic sibling? Hopefully as we consider this morning what the author of Hebrews said about Jesus, we will become more acquainted with this God who is over us like a king or parent, yet who also has chosen to stand with us like a sibling or a close friend. Sometimes it's helpful for us to start at the end and work our way backwards. So let's begin by considering a few words that come after our passage, starting at chapter 5, verse 11. We have much to say that is hard to explain since you have become dull in understanding, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic elements of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Unfortunately, this passage is often used to criticize or dismiss people who don't think like we do or who supposedly aren't as mature as we are. A very similar phrase about milk versus solid food can be found in the first letter to the Corinthian church as well. But the point of each passage is to encourage people of faith and not to condemn them, to build up, not tear down, to paint a picture of a preferred future while simultaneously being realistic about the present. And what the writer to the Hebrews was pointing out was this. Followers of Christ have much, much more to learn. 
And the journey of faith should always be seen as an ongoing pursuit. We all get complacent at times, content with how things are and presuming that we've already arrived. However, it's essential for us to remember that rest in this life, pausing from the regular flow of activity, is meant to allow us to catch our breath, to refocus our outlook, and then to keep moving ahead. As one Bible commentator has written, settling into an abiding resting place while still on a journey would in effect mean falling back from the goal. Neither the followers of Joshua in the past nor the followers of Jesus in the present can remain motionless, but are to strive in learning, in service, and in worship. So if any of us do find ourselves to be sedentary or fully satisfied, this is likely a good indication that we are not yet mature and have further to tread. It reminds me of the parable Jesus once told where two men were at the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. No one likes being called immature, unskilled, spiritually dull, or sinner. Neither should we go about wielding such words like weapons, carelessly belittling others. But in the process of individually and communally considering the person and work of Jesus Christ, it's inevitable that we will realize there is always room for us to become more mature more skilled in righteousness, more spiritually sharp, and more holy than we are. We can always be more obedient than right now because every last one of us is a slow learner. However, if our task in life is to actively and authentically follow in the steps of Jesus, this means that we are similarly called to be lifelong Learners, never giving up the pursuit of learning. Because as you'll be considering next week, it's been written that Jesus himself learned obedience through what he suffered. God learning something? God suffering? This is surely one reason why the author of Hebrews wrote about this, we have much to say that is hard to explain. It's hard for any one of us to conceive of mysteries like this, but if it's true, as Scripture maintains it to be, then it's deeply encouraging. Because as it says in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, if God is truly able to sympathize with us, to actually feel with us the suffering we face in this life, to directly and profoundly know the challenges of our existence, then there is a promise of grace hope, and help that we can hold on to when we are in need. 
This is why it says in the second chapter of Hebrews that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, that Christ became like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. What's happening in our passage is an expansion of these observations, but with a specific emphasis on Jesus as a high priest. So there's no misunderstanding. Portraying Jesus as priest doesn't detract from seeing him as sacrifice in the same way that talking about Jesus as human doesn't diminish the reality of his divine nature. It's not a matter of either or. It's a matter of both and. What Hebrews and the canon of literature in the New Testament points to is that Christ is both priest and sacrifice, both human and God, both our brother and our Lord. It just happens that the focus of our text is on the aspect of Jesus being a human priest, one who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself was subject to weakness, one who by suffering learned what it means to obey, one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. And that's the crucial difference between Christ and us, our sin. But that's why God needed to become like us, so that God could be the source of eternal salvation by doing something on our behalf, like one of the high priests of old. Two main ways that the Lord spoke to people during Israel's history was through prophets and angels. Yet one of the other primary ways that the word of God came to people was through priests. The sacrificial system itself served to communicate many weighty truths to the community of faith about life and their relationship with the Lord. To this end, it was the priest's responsibility to visibly enact spiritual realities, demonstrating through word and action things like God's holiness, the cost associated with sin, our need for forgiveness, our responsibility in the process of making restitution, and the importance of giving thanks. As for the high priest, they had a number of duties, but their main task as many of us know, was linked to the Day of Atonement, when two goats would be brought before the people as an offering for their sin. Lots would be cast to determine which goat would be killed and which goat would be spared. Then the blood of the goat that was killed would be taken into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for sin, while the second goat, or scapegoat, would be sent out into the wilderness as another sign of atonement. There are a number of things happening here. First, one idea that's conveyed is this. There are certain things that we do or leave undone in life that create a distance or a disconnection between us and God. This, of course, is referred to as sin. Second, there is a payment that needs to be made in order to renew or restore the broken relationship. Third, the sacrificial system in the Hebrew Bible speaks of an exchange of one life for another. One life is given, allowing another to be saved. Fourth, the goat that was killed was seen to bear the consequence of sin, while the one that was driven into the wilderness 
was seen to take the sin away. And fifth, the entire process of reconciliation or making peace with God was never done directly, but at all times through a mediator. To say the same thing differently, what having priests demonstrated was that it was not possible for people, for anyone, to sidestep, overcome, or defeat sin on their own. Everyone needs help from someone who has been put in charge, called, appointed, or designated to do so. And what the letter of Hebrews points out is that Jesus is that someone who we can look to for help. As Christ, our brother, is someone who protectively watches out for us, who we can look up to and learn from, who has faced the challenges we face. And not only can he relate to us as a brother, since Jesus is like us in every respect by virtue of his humanness, Christ simultaneously is able to release us from the sin we contend with in life, as this priest called Jesus is also God. Lastly, it's important to point out that when Hebrews 4 verse 12 uses the phrase, the word of God, that it's not referring here to the book we commonly call the Bible. Although the phrase, word of God, arguably includes scripture, it is also much more and much bigger than just scripture. What's being spoken of in verse 12 is God's living address to humankind. God speaking via the Holy Spirit which was surely involved in the composition of what we find in the Bible, but not collapsible into the Bible. Because what has been preserved for us in writing is only a means to an end, that end being a direct spiritual encounter with God. Accordingly, long ago, it says that the word of God came to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets angels, and priests. But as it states in John 1, 14, the word of God later became flesh and lived among us. The challenge for us today, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, the challenge for us is to wait upon God's word, to be open to whatever God might have to say to us, to give anything and everything that God may ask of us, to persevere, to press on toward maturity, to admit that we do need rescuing, to look intently to this matchless high priest who is able to and wanting to help us, and to make space for Jesus, the word of God incarnate, to speak to us. And though it may not be understood to be a positive thing by everyone, it's a comforting thought to me that God is constantly watching over us, seeking to connect with us personally. He knows our thoughts and our struggles, the good and the bad, and God is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Perhaps we might even hear God addressing us today saying, I am the good big brother. I'm not distant, unsympathetic, and waiting for you to stumble so that I can condemn you. 
I know, I know what it's like. And I'm here to cheer you on. I'm not monitoring your thoughts, words, and actions in order to oppress you. I'm genuinely interested in who you are and seeking to guide you in ways that will ultimately benefit you and allow you to experience true freedom. I want the very best for you. The question is, will you give me your best? The Lord knows what you are facing this very moment. God knows your thoughts and intentions, your wishes and needs, your doubts and reservations, your weaknesses and failings, and still loves you with an unrivaled and immutable love. Let us, therefore, approach the throne of grace together with boldness so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen.